If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll be spending our time to, together today studying the first two verses, but for the sake of context and for the sake of next week's study, we'll read through verse 4. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll begin together in verse 1. Hear now God's living and active word. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he had made the world, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Before we begin, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in that you are a God who is not silent, but that you have determined according to your good pleasure to speak to your children through your word. As we have just sung and as we have just confessed, it's now our very prayer that you would speak to us that we would with open arms and ears and hearts receive that food which is your word. That by God the Spirit you would take your truth and plant it deep within our hearts. That it would take root and produce fruit so that Christ alone would be magnified. Bless this time now for your glory and your glory alone. And it's in the precious name of your beloved Son we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we jump into the actual text, as it's always the case, it's necessary as students of the Bible that whenever we begin a new study that we introduce the book. And so I want to begin our time together by first establishing the context of Hebrews and second, its content. I want for us to examine the context and the content of Hebrews so that we might better understand why God has providentially gave his church this epistle, and also that we might better understand what God was and is communicating to us through it today. And so, I want you to imagine with me, taking a 2,000-year step backwards, I want you to imagine with me first century Rome. Around the years of 60 to 70 A.D., And the current emperor who's seated upon the throne at this time is none other than the infamous Nero Claudius Caesar. Now, unlike the characteristics that are expected to describe a Caesar, a ruler who's to be just, an honorable ruler, a provider, a protectorate of his people and his empire, Nero was the complete antithesis of what a Caesar was to be. So much so that it's actually quite common to read historians describe Nero to be a man of great evil. 
One historian I came across even go, uh, he goes as far as to describe Nero as, quote, a monster of great wickedness. And some of you in here, perhaps, who've never studied or heard of Nero might be thinking to yourselves, why? Why such a harsh word to describe this man named Nero? Well, it's been well documented in the pages of history that under the reign of Nero, a great fire broke out in A.D. 64 that completely ripped through the city of Rome, destroying with it a majority of the homes and the businesses and taking with it the lives of hundreds and thousands of innocent people. And rather than sending out his men and his soldiers to extinguish this fire, it's been said that Nero was found comfortably sitting back upon his throne, playing his fiddle as he watched with a smile the total destruction of the city and the people, the lives of the people he was to protect. The reason being that it was Nero who started the fire. Naturally, people started asking questions seeking out answers, and the people of Rome started getting wind that it was Nero who was to blame for such a fire. In a panic, rather than accepting his actions and taking upon the consequences of his actions, the Roman historian, a man by the name of Tacitus, he writes and he tells us clearly that Nero, he willfully shifted the blame and pointed his finger at none other than a group of people called Christians. And as you might expect it, this ignited perhaps one of the greatest persecutions within church history. Nero, to make himself more believable to the people of Rome, he began to go around himself and relentlessly persecute Christians. He began to torture them publicly mutilate them and slaughter them in the most inhumane ways one could even imagine. Nero wasn't just interested in killing Christians, you see. He didn't enjoy quick deaths, but he took great pleasure and satisfaction in seeing these Christians suffer. Historians write about how Nero would, he would often catch Christians and he would strip them of their clothes and he would spread out their limbs and he would tie down and wrap around raw pieces of animal flesh around their bodies so then he could release a pack of wild dogs to tear these Christians apart piece by piece to be eaten alive. It's also been well documented by another historian that Nero would frequently douse Christians with tar and then strap them down to poles to be lifted up and ignited on fire to serve as his own personal lamps at night for his dinner parties. This was a wicked man. This was an evil man. And as you can see, this was a time of great persecution for the early church. And again, you can imagine believing in and identifying oneself with Christ at this time came at a very high cost. It wasn't some kind of flippant decision one could make like it is today. But rather, this was a serious matter of life or death. And it was within this context 
this period that the book of Hebrews was written in. Now, if we were to take a step back while having all of this in our minds, what would you say to these Christians? And I really want you to think about it. I'm asking you guys a question here now. I really want you to think about what you would say. If I were to ask you, write a letter to these persecuted Christians, what would you say? What would you write? What would you write and say to these men and women who are facing such intense and brutal oppression? What would you write to these Christians who are, who are literally on the brink of renouncing Christ just so that they can save their lives and the lives of their loved ones, their families, their friends? Where would you even begin? What would you say? Perhaps some of you, and I can imagine this, perhaps some of you might some, say something about politics and write something like, well, Nero can't live forever. I'm sure someone will soon, hopefully sooner than later, come and take his throne. And I'm sure some kind of political swing of some sort will happen sometime in the next coming few years. Perhaps some of you might recommend something a bit more practical and write something like, just try your best. Just keep a low profile. Try to go about your life unnoticed. Don't draw too much attention on yourself. Just stay low. Just stay low a little while longer until everything blows over. Just do this. Just do that. Just try this and just try that, you might say. Now, I want to draw your attentions to what the author of Hebrews writes. Looking at verse 1, notice what he says. What does he write? He writes, God has spoken. God has spoken at various times and in various ways through the prophets and by his Son. Meaning that the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Luke, the very same Luke who penned the Gospel of Luke, and if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it after this service. But I believe that Luke in opening this letter in this way, by writing that God has indeed spoken, was pointing to doctrine, specifically the doctrine of Christ. In addressing the persecuted saints, Luke gives to them doctrine to hold on to. He doesn't encourage them with mere words of practicality or applications of things they need to do or things that they ought to try out because he knows that at the end of the day that's not going to help them that's not going to do anything for them when they're being chased down by wild dogs they're being chased down trying to be killed by these roman soldiers that's not going to do anything for them when they lose their loved ones and friends that's not going to do anything for them or, or help them in any way when they feel totally and utterly lost and alone and helpless. And so he gives to these persecuted Christians, which is the content of, the Hebrew, or of Hebrews, the doctrine of Christ. He reminds these persecuted Christians of the supremacy of Christ and he gives this for them to hold on to. He gives to them God's spoken word in the very word of God himself. 
to anchor them and to root them and to secure them down in the midst of the most brutal and severe trials and tribulations one can even begin to imagine. In writing that God has spoken, he's redirecting his readers' attention away from their own present persecutions to the supremacy and to the glory of Christ, which again is the very theme of this whole epistle, the supremacy of Christ. That Jesus, the Son, is the true and final prophet. That he is the great high priest. That he is the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. And that he, as we will learn today, that Christ the Son is the perfect, the authoritative, the divine, the secure, and the final word of God. As we open up our study of Hebrews, and as, I, as we examine these first two chapters, or rather these first two verses, it's my hope that by the end of our time together today that we'll all walk out of this room marveling, amazed at awe at the fact that the creator of the universe has decided to speak to us. That the creator of the universe has indeed spoken to us. Looking at our passage now, you might have noticed while reading these two verses that there exists a fine balance between continuity and contrast. Uh, the overarching continuity that we have here in this, these two verse, uh, first verses is that God has spoken. Uh, God has spoken. This is the umbrella and this is the thread that weaves and brings verses 1 and 2 together. But I also want you to notice the contrast that we have in these first two verses. In verse 1, we have long ago in time past. And in verse 2, in these last days. In verse 1, we have to the fathers. And in verse 2, and to us. In verse 1, we have by the prophets. And in verse 2, by his Son, and it's in this contrast between how God has spoken through the prophets and how God has spoken through the Son, His Son, that we'll be focusing on today. And these two points will serve as sort of our outline as we move through this. So turn your attentions back to verse 1, and we'll read this together again. We read in verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In our first point here, we read that God through the prophets at various times and in various ways has spoken. Now, it would be very easy for us to simply read past this profound truth that's found in this opening verse and to take it for granted by speeding through it as if it were nothing more than a simple fact. But we need to consider this afternoon, this evening rather, that it's one thing to know that God exists. It's one thing to assert that God is. It's one thing to recognize that God is here with us. But it's altogether another thing to say and recognize that God has spoken. It's one thing to have the Bible. 
It's one thing to read the Bible. It's one thing to believe the Bible to be inerrant and to be filled with the truths of God. But oh, how we often overlook the glorious fact that the God of the universe has spoken to us through His Word. And that He has, as we've read here, first through the prophets at various times and in various ways, has spoken. Now, you might be like me, and you might read this, and you might be thinking and asking yourselves, why? I understand that God has spoken, and he speaks at various times, and, he, and in various ways. I see that, but why did he even choose to do that in the first place? I mean, he's God, after all. Why not just pick and choose one prophet to relay everything that he had to say? Why so many prophets? Why in so many ways? Why at so many times? And I believe that there are two observations that can be made here as to why. First, we need to first know that we worship a God who is not silent. We worship a God who is not silent. We worship a God who has clearly communicated to his people at many times and in many ways through precise and intelligible and understandable language. One of the greatest and most common critiques and misunderstandings that the world has against Christians today is that they wrongly believe that we worship a God who is silent and unknowable. They believe that we worship a God who is distant, a God who is irrational. They say, where's your God? Where's your God? I can't hear him. I never heard him talk. Let me just hear him talk one time, just one time, and I'll believe. Let me just hear one word from him, and I'll believe everything that you have, you have to say about him. But yet again, we clearly read here in God's word, in these opening verses, that God has spoken. And so we need to quickly recognize here that the problem here isn't so much with the silence of God as so much as it is with the lack of one's hearing to God. In other words, God isn't silent. You're just hard of hearing. Or perhaps a better way to put it, your heart is hard of hearing. In meditating over these verses, this verse, the text that immediately came to my mind was Mark eight seventeen, and you guys might know this, where Jesus, in rebuking his own disciples for their own hard-heartedness and unbelief, he says to them, do you not yet perceive, yet understand? Is your heart still hardened? And he goes on to say this, having eyes do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? It's possible to have ears and not hear. Friends, there are some of you in here at this very moment who physically have and are physically holding in your hands the very Word of God, but you have yet to still recognize and believe that this is the very voice of God, that He speaks through this. He speaks through His Word. 
And I'm sure that there are some of you in here who at this very moment are down and discouraged, facing and going through some of the most difficult trials in your lives. And you might have thought, and you might even be thinking to yourselves right now, oh, only if God can speak to me. Only if he can speak a word to me. Only if he were here with me. Only if I could just hear his voice and tell me what to do and what to say. Oh, dear friends, if this describes you at this very moment, then let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to take heart and remind you that the Lord has spoken. He speaks to you this very moment. Let me encourage you to take upon His Word and read it. To listen to His voice as you read His Word page by page, word by word, letter by letter. Second, the reason for why God spoke and He chose to spoke, speak rather at various times and in various ways through the prophets is because God wants his people to understand. We worship the one true God who's not only not silent, but we worship a God who wants us to properly understand and rightly comprehend his word. Again, as I previously mentioned, it's not that God's hard to understand but rather it's that we are hard of understanding. God doesn't have a communication problem as much as we have a hearing, a listening problem. And unlike other religions that leaves its people seeking out signs and wonders in the sky, waiting upon for for whispers as it were in the ear, oh, how we should rejoice and take great comfort in knowing that our Heavenly Father at various times and in various ways has spoken through the prophets so that they and so that we might understand Him. And friends, we should all take great comfort and find unshakable assurance in the very fact that our God is not silent. He's not dismissive. He's not forgotten about you. He cares for His children and He wants you and He desires you to know Him. He wants you to hear Him so much so that in His good pleasure that He's decided to manifest and communicate His Word at various times and in various ways. So much so that whenever you find yourselves finding difficulty in how to process and apply the narrative of Genesis, you can go to the hymn book of Scripture and the book of Psalms and read out loud, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. And when you find yourselves having difficulty in grasping and making sense of the law of Leviticus, you can hear him speak words of wisdom through the book of Proverbs. And when you're hard of hearing and unable to understand the the narratives of Exodus, he gives to you Daniel to encourage you to remain steadfast in the Lord despite the government, despite rulers, despite the situations and trials and tribulations in life. Friends, 
you must know that our God has spoken. He is not silent. And He wants us, He wants you to understand His Word. And one of the most heartbreaking things I've had people share with me, and even within the church, and I've heard this multiple times on why this guy or this girl, why he or she doesn't read the Bible, is because they think that it's just too hard to understand. So much so that they begin to describe the Bible to be some sort of uh, enigma or a puzzle, some sort of riddle that's to be unraveled and figured out. As if God meant it for us to not know him. Only if these people knew, only if they understood and recognized that God has spoken. That he at various times and in various ways have spoken for them to understand. That he has spoken at various times and in various ways to them for their good. And not just with the Old Testament and not just with the prophets, but we even see this and we can apply this in the New Testament with the Gospels. I mean, you ever wonder why we have four Gospels? If you don't understand Matthew, well, he gives you Mark. If Mark is too short, well, he gives you Luke. Well, if Luke's too long and you don't understand Luke, he gives you John. There's a reason why he wants you to know. Friends, oh, how we ought to rejoice with thanksgiving at the glorious fact that the same God who spoke all things into existence, all things into being, that the God of the universe, he who upholds all things by the power of his word, has spoken to us. Moving on, verse 2, we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. In contrast to God speaking through prophets, we read here that God has spoken in these last days by His Son. Now, just to say real quick, I want to make sure I add this as a disclaimer. This by no means, as some critics have tried to sneak in here, this by no means, this does not mean in any way, shape, or form that the Word of God received and communicated by the prophets in the Old Testament were somehow less than or fallible, or needed some sort of revision that was needed. This doesn't mean that the word, of the, pro- the word of God, the words of the prophets, were somehow null and void with the coming of Christ. But stated in another way, the Old Testament is just as true, just as authoritative, just as right, just as inherent, or inerrant rather, as the new. And so the difference we see here The contrast between God speaking through the prophets versus God speaking through the the Son is not in the, the, the veracity or the truthfulness of the word that was being spoken, but the but the means in which the word was communicated. In other words, 
the meaning of God has spoken reaches its climax and its crescendo, its perfection and finality in the Son of God. It's a new means of divine revelation. The words of God come not through the mouths of prophets, but from the very lips of God Himself is what this means. While the prophets began, whenever we read in the Old Testament, when they began to speak, they said, Thus saith the Lord. They spoke God's word with, Thus saith the Lord. While in contrast, Christ on the other hand, Christ the Son, proclaims things like this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. This to say that the divine authority that Jesus spoke with was altogether different compared to the prophets. He was categorically different. We get a glimpse of the uniqueness of his authority in the gospel narratives, and maybe you remember this, But in the gospel narratives, when Jesus casts out a demon in the synagogue, after healing a demon-possessed man, we read of how the crowds just stood there in amazement with their jaws dropped. They stood there in amazement in stunned silence. They were completely baffled at what just took place right in front of their eyes in Jesus casting out a demon. And did you ever notice why they just stood there? You ever catch why? You ever catch the reason for why they were so amazed? It wasn't because of the miracle. You would have expected the gospel writers to say that the crowds stood there in in amazement at the miracle of the healing of the demon-possessed man, but we don't read that. He doesn't say that. They don't write that. Rather, in Luke chapter 4.36, you don't have to turn there, but we read, that the crowd stood still in utter shock, in amazement, utterly stunned as they spoke to one another saying, what word is this? For with what authority and power this man speaks, he commands even the unclean spirits. You see, it was the authority of the Son, the authority of His Word, the Son of God, that utterly shook the crowds to their core. It was the authority of Christ that struck terror in their hearts, not the miracle. The contrast seen in the prophets from the Son, again, is not in the truthfulness of what's being spoken of, but the means. This to say that there existed a higher category of revelation because there exists a higher category of relationship. Now let me paint that out by quoting Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think he put it the best, way better than I can put it. He writes this, A servant may be able to say everything that is right about his Lord and Master. He may even know him well and intimately but he can never represent him in the way that a son can. The son is a manifestation of the father by being what he is. 
Thus our Lord himself, while here on earth, represented and manifested the name of God in such a way that is incomparable and greater than all others. Why? Because he is the Son of God. Following in contrast, in con- contrasting the Son from the prophets, we continue to read in verse 2 that God has spoken in these last days through the Son, and he writes, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Recognizing that, or rather recognizing the greater means and the higher category that there exists by the very nature of who the Son is, the writer of Hebrews now, he, he continues uh, to write and qualify this magnificent truth with two subpoints. He gives two reasons as to why this is true. We read first because the Son is an heir, and second because the Son is the creator of the world. First, God speaking through the Son is superior because Jesus has been appointed by God as heir of all things. Now what does this mean? Additionally, why even add this description in? I mean, he could have just stopped at the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, could he have not? He could have just stopped at saying Jesus is the Son of God and that would have been a perfectly sufficient place to stop and a perfectly sufficient enough reason for me to understand the supremacy of Christ over the prophets. So what does he mean by this? What's the point that Luke or the writer of Hebrews is trying to make here? Quickly turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, many of you know this passage, and some of you might even know where I'm trying to go with this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you're there, I'll read. Paul writes that he, namely Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Which is to say this, as the appointed heir of God, as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, as the one who created all things, invented all things, owns all things, upholds all things, both invisible and invisible, it means that Jesus can make good on his word. Every pledge, every vow, every promise, every word spoken by him can be taken with a divine stamp of guarantee. So that whenever you find yourselves, like the early church, being persecuted, whenever you find yourself being ridiculed for your faith, whenever you find yourself being down and discouraged, whenever you find yourself tired and alone and you find yourself battling sickness, when you're told you only have a few weeks to live, when you fight depression and when you face overwhelming temptation and you hear God say to you through Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And you say to him, well, Jesus, how can I trust that? 
How can I trust a promise like that? That the meek shall inherit the earth. Then God, then Jesus will say to you, because I am the heir of it all. I'm the heir of all things. I own it all. I inherited the earth. It's all mine to give. I can give it to you. That's why my word is sure and bond. Friends, God has not only spoken through his word, but the son as the heir of God makes good on his word. There's a surety. Oh, I love that. There's a surety. Just grab it with with his word. There's a weightiness, a certainty, a finality to all that Christ says. His words, they're not only true, they're not only sincere, they're not only flawless, but we recognize that his words are trustworthy. Not just some of it. Not just most of it. Not just the ones that seem trustworthy, but all of it. The reason for the superiority of God speaking through the Son is because as the heir of all things, again, Christ makes good on His word. God has indeed spoken. And the words that He spoke are yes and amen in the air, Jesus Christ. Second, the reason for the superiority of, of God speaking through the Son is because, jumping back to Hebrews 1 verse 2, is because He, the Son, He made the world. Is because the Son Himself is the Creator. Now, it might almost seem redundant, redundant, especially after reading Colossians 1, that Christ as the heir of God is to be synonymous to Christ being the Creator Himself. But let me assure you that there exists a very fine and significant distinction between the two, and it's this. Christ the Son isn't only the heir of God, but He is Himself as the Creator. He is God. The Son of God is God. We need to hear that. He is God. Now, I can only imagine as the early church, specifically the Christian Jews who were being persecuted, the the original audience that the book of Hebrews was addressed to, I can only imagine that as they were being squeezed under, under the weight of persecution, that their Jewish counterparts constantly tempted them to renounce Christ and to return to Judaism. They probably said things like this, just forget about Jesus. All you have to say is that He's not God. It's so close. Just say it. What's the big deal about saying that? Don't you want to save your life? Don't you want to save your family's lives? We'll even agree with you. We'll give it to you that he's a prophet. We'll even agree with you that he's an heir of God. We'll we'll give you that. Just renounce, just renounce that he is not God. One commentator writes this. He says, I can only imagine the kind of arguments that unbelieving Jews would have employed to dissuade their Christian Jewish friends. They would have pointed out that Jesus was just a man, the son of a poor carpenter from a backwater village in Galilee. They might have even echoed Nathaniel's comment, saying, can anything good come out of 
Nazareth? The reason for why the writer of Hebrews doesn't merely stop at describing the Son as the heir of God, but continues to qualify him and describe him as the creator who made the world is because you can't understand the one from the other. They're mutually inclusive. It's impossible to fully understand Jesus as the heir of all things until you recognize that he's the creator of all things. It's impossible to fully understand what it means for God to have spoken without first realizing that Jesus is both heir and creator, that he's both the Son and God, that he's simultaneously the God-man in human flesh and the God-man who's divine. It's only within this distinct union and balance between the two when one can truly begin to understand what it means that God has spoken by His son. On a side note, and you might be discussing this in your small groups today, historically within the early church, it's always been the case that whenever there existed the separation between the two natures of God, his humanity from his divinity, is where where we've seen some of the most dangerous and destructive heresies come about. And some of the examples you might discuss today is found in Sabellianism, and Nestorianism, Adoptionism, Arianism, and the list goes on and on. And perhaps this is one of the reasons, and I'd like to think for why Luke made it a priority to add the details that he did here in this epistle. Again, the reason for the superiority of God speaking through the Son is not only found in the fact that He's the heir of God, but because he himself is God. This is the reason for why the means of the word spoken through the Son is so much greater than the words spoken through the prophets. And this is the reason for why the Son can make good on his word and why we can securely trust upon his promises. And it's in the very fact that the Son is both and simultaneously the heir and the creator that we clearly see the superiority of Christ over the prophets, and as we'll see see and study later on in our future studies, the reasons for why Christ is superior over the angels, and the priests, and the kings, and the sacrifices, the sacrificial systems. And yes, because God has spoken a word, but also because he himself is the very word that's been spoken. And this whole time you might be thinking, and you might have had John 1 and rightfully so in your mind. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now as we draw to a close, I want to quickly and briefly address the non-believers who might be here with us tonight. Looking back at verse 2, I want you to notice and I want to bring to your attention that the Son of God was not only the heir of all things, but we read here specifically that he was appointed heir of all things. The word that's used here for appointed in the Greek, the root word uh, tithemi, is a word that communicates detailed intentionality and purpose. It's a word that gives off a 
connotation of, of service and even, if I can say, even self-sacrifice, a, a, a meaning of laying something down. This to say that the coming of Jesus Christ as the appointed heir of God to speak a word, to heal the sick, to restore the main, to preach the kingdom of God, to die for sinners, to conquer the grave in His resurrection was not by chance but it was all appointed by His heavenly Father in eternity past. That the coming of Christ into this world was not by chance nor by luck. It was not by coincidence nor by fate. It was not a second-hand thought of God to send His Son to save sinners, but it was according to God's good pleasure to appoint His only Son as the heir of all things to save and redeem sinners like you. For God so loved the world that He appointed, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Unbelieving friends, it's my prayer that you would recognize that God has indeed spoken to you this day and that you would respond to Him in obedience. That you would recognize and confess and turn from your sins and to turn to Christ and trust in Him. That you would indeed recognize that the Creator of all things, the One who's designed all things, the One who upholds all things, has called upon you this day to trust in Him. And oh, how it's my prayer that you would not only hear His Word, that you would not only know His Word, that you would not only accept His Word to be right and true, but that you would know that His words and His promises are sure for you. Not based upon how tightly you can grip upon His promises, but because He, the Son of God, is the heir and creator of all things. Because He has secured all things for you. Pillar Baptist Church, what an amazing gift it is to know that God of the universe, our God of the universe, has spoken to us. And what a marvel it is that we have in our very hands and at our own disposal the very Word of God. Beloved, may I encourage you as we close, may I encourage you to read it. Meditate upon it. Do not neglect it. Imprint your hearts upon it. Preach it. Proclaim it. Treasure it. Listen to it. For your God speaks through it. Let's come to the Lord and pray. Our gracious Father, oh, how far too often we have, as your people, neglected your word and neglected your voice. Lord, we confess that whenever we sin, that it's no, not so much this sin or that evil that we do, but our continual separation and disunion from our loving Heavenly Father. We pray that by Your Spirit, that we would continually live in close proximity to You, and that we would not only heed and listen to Your Word, but that we would respond in obedience and live it out. And that for Your glory in your glory alone.
It's in the name of your beloved son we pray. Amen.